enablement for the general market there? How do you think about not only talking to the users that know they need you now, but educating the folks that like don't yet understand that they're going to need you next year? It becomes more complicated. But on the other end, the trade-off that you gain is way more TAM as a platform. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Shraki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scale. I'm pleased to have Gleev Polyakov with me. He's the CEO and founder at Nylas, a communication platform as a service. Gleev, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. So my name is Gleev. I'm the CEO here at Nylas. I'm originally from the former Soviet Union, but grew up in the States. What Nihilus is, is we are a CPaaS platform, a communication platform as a service targeted at developers. And we're the only one that allows you to connect into the actual contents of communication. We do that by also being the first party integration into email, calendar, contacts, a few other communication channels, but those are our primary use cases. And what we get by connecting directly to a mailbox is the actual insight, right? We get to actually parse, structure the unstructured data and deliver value on what is in a message, which can be useful if you're a recruiting tool, a sales tool, if you're trying to buy a home and you're uh, putting mortgage documents back and forth between your banker and your real estate agents, or it could be useful if you're a B2C product and needing to surface and access for your users the purchasing data. Things, travel information, SKU level, like item level receipts only exist in mailboxes. That's the only place to get them. So we help drive both the engagement and the insights across email, calendar, and contacts for anyone building these flows into software. Is it fair to say your company also markets heavily this platform to mostly developers or other software companies, or you have some other sector of the markets as well that you cover? No, that's right. So we're a developer tool. The folks that are using us at the end of the day are developers. Specifically, you can think of them as application developers. The folks who are building the core product or the software flow itself for our customers. We don't sell exclusively into SaaS companies, though they make up a large portion of our market share. So I'd say something like 60%, so a little bit over the majority are SaaS companies, are ISV vendors of one shape or another, regardless of how they license. Their core product is the software that they put out and build. ClickUp is a great example. Evernote, these are Nihilus customers that power the integrations through us. 
There's a good list of software tools. I'm sure you've heard of many of them. Sales Loft on the sales side, Active Campaign in the same industry that use us to, to power the core pieces of their product. And as a business, the whole goal here is we want to be your long-term infrastructure partner for communication. That said, we also have a large amount of more traditional enterprises. So the Comcasts, the Hyundais, uh, we have a couple of large banks and other customers whose uh, I would love to name, but the core product there is not, it's not a software product, right? If you're a bank, your product is your banking. However, because there's a huge need to drive visual experiences, a huge need that, frankly, table stakes to drive engagement and personalization within the digital part of your product experience, we fit in there just the same. So the same application development type use case, but across non-SaaS, non-ISV type companies and use cases. So definitely with the rise of software and increasing number of developers, this developer economy or selling to developers or B2D model or B2B2D model, either way, it's kind of getting something, it's expanding the market size. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was not a good size market, but many companies like Twilio or some other companies came to market and proved that that can be actually a good size market. And then there are more and more companies in that kind of market. You also mentioned the term first party data in the past that I would like for you to expand upon. What do you mean by first party data? What I mean by first-party data, data that's not like derived or going through middlemen, aggregators to get to you. That might be funny to say, like in a certain sense, oh, our infrastructure product is a middleman layer. But what I mean is, so I mentioned some of our marketplaces use us to find and surface within the marketplace experience. The like, Here's everything you purchased. Here's like what you um, bought and the tracking numbers, regardless of who you, who you have the product shipping from, you can see in the mobile experience, on the desktop experience, everything that was purchased or whatever that company is using that information for in their product flow can only come from the end user. What I mean by first party data is data that comes via the permissions of the end user, not via you know cookie and tracking, not via credit card aggregate panel data, not via like the meta information that's derived from activities that a user takes. Instead, it's like the core information of the user interaction given to you through user permissions. That's what we see as first-party data. And like the relevance of that is the privacy landscape is changing. So I'm sure you saw there was the, the Apple ads change that cost Facebook something like 10 billion in revenue before their, their most recent meta burn, metaverse burn type uh, news hit even. I think Apple ads revenue did go up considerably after that too, but it was a focus on user privacy. We have a lot of companies like consumer brands that are coming to us saying like, cool, I know that I sell $20 million in soap on Amazon every quarter. I have no idea who's buying it. I just know that oh yeah, we ship it over to them and they don't share the data. So brands like Nike, most famously, went off of the Amazon platform and now drives, this is going to be a ballpark number, but I think it's something like 25% of their revenue through D2C channels. Other companies see that. They're a product teams. They're actually, strangely, their CMOs tend to come to us and say, cool, Nike's doing this. My CEO demands that we do at least 10%. We have to build our own digital experience. We have to have to own that relationship within our own platform somehow to make it meaningful, to make it sticky, to make it engaging, and to drive the interactions that they want. They have to understand their users to a level that they can't get through aggregate data, and they have to be able to communicate with their users. And that's where we help them with. Fantastic. The API economy that you are part of it, 
I would say it's expanding, it's increasing as expected. And then even if you look at, for example, services like AWS itself or other companies, they are part of that API economy as well, right? So the amount of money you pay just for hosting and infrastructure is getting less and less. And the portion that everyone pays them in order to use the services running on AWS, in other words, having those APIs and access to those services is getting more and more. So that's the increasing part of that business. And overall, I think API is about really software developers help each other to build better, richer products. Because otherwise, if you have to develop from A to Z, everything by yourself, that only takes you to a very limited kind of place, right? So you have to really make it in a way that we can interact, we can collaborate, we can cooperate. What's your take on this API economy? Yeah, 100%. And this is this is similar to what you were saying earlier, right? About the rise of dev tools, the proof of the validity of businesses that target either developers directly, if you're selling like a DevOps, DevOps product, a DevRel product, some sort of focus on making dev life easier. But like the more interesting layer, the more interesting use cases to me are the ones that are accelerating the pace of software development overall. So the Amazon uh, AWS example is a great one. It allows folks access into mature software products. It allows them, they're basically buying time to market. They're buying scale, time to market, security. Anyone who's like a major player in this API economy is selling the same thing at the end of the day. How do you build something more efficiently? And what you're seeing, like the reason that these companies are becoming more and more successful is that, well, frankly, software continues to eat the world. And we are still at the beginning of that curve. You can just look at the number of folks that have internet access. It's something around four, four and a half billion. People today have access to the internet. 100% of them have an email address, which is uh, why my company focused first on email. It's like your identity token into like a whole universe of services. But that aside, like software is eating the world because like it gives you leverage. The reason people use software is well, really only two reasons. One, it helps you do manual tasks or tasks that would otherwise have to be manual a lot faster, which saves everyone's time and heartache. And two, it helps like the memory and calculation tasks that human brains suck at. So those two things, that's what software does for us. Turns out those two things are wildly useful. So, so useful. And we've seen the global economy expand, everything happen, like the access, the opportunity, education. Like I love uh, YouTube videos for educational content. I love TikTok videos for like, I, I just found a new uh, use case for that, where uh, you, if you go to a new place, you can search for like local restaurants, things to do, like in the TikTok app, and it was just kind of fun. But at the end of the day, there's this trend where software is in the world. The, it's a bit cliche at this point to even say it out loud. And what it means is because of the needs of businesses, because of the expectations of users, which may be a better way of saying it, because of where the market is right now, there's a table stakes need if you want to be competitive, if you want to go after the market to drive engaging digital experiences. It doesn't matter if you're B2B, B2C, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you're competing with someone else that has an equivalent or better digital experience. And the user expectation is that it get better and more seamless over time, get more secure over time, give them more control over their data and the ways they communicate. The way that plays out in markets is that, well, businesses see that there's a need there, that they can compete, and that software does provide leverage. So they hire a lot of developers to build those tools, make that reality happen. 
Then on the hiring side, you see every year more and more developers coming onto the market, whether they're graduating with a CS degree or are self-taught or go through a boot camp. That's what's happening. You know, rough numbers, but like five years ago, it was a million new developers a year. Uh, it's maybe closer to 2 million uh, new developers a year coming online now. These like new grads on month one of being a developer. So the need is going up for software. The need is going up for developers. The market is filling that gap. At the same time, if more developers come into market, your average developer, if you look like just like tenure, is getting worse. They're getting less and less experience. You know, 10 years ago, it was on average, making this up, like five years of experience. As more and more new ones come into the market, the average goes down to like one year, two years, one year of experience. So companies have to choose, well, are they going to give up their need to deliver good products? No, they're going to need that. Are they going to accept having much larger teams that are slower moving? Unlikely. I haven't seen that happen yet. That's not really the core of capitalism. What's happening instead is like this beautiful overlap of Venn diagrams around business need, like social opportunity, and like the, uh, and this might be geeky, but like the fundamental nature of software development itself where the tool set is getting so much better. And the cool part for us as a company, being like the CPaaS provider, is that we get to enable and actually allow people to do so many cool things with communication, which is like a critical piece of any software, any software platform, any software tool. Like they all need the same three things. And I'm stealing this one from uh, Jason, uh, the former CTO at GitHub. It all needs payments, it all needs identity, and all needs communication. So you got to be able to buy stuff. You got to be able to know who the people are. So you got your stripes, you got your crypto projects, you got your uh, octas and SSO type products. But you need communication. Uh, you got to be able to uh, actually talk to people to get things done. That's wild west right now. It's super fragmented. The vast majority are proxied solutions. You know, I'm thinking like a, a Cinch, a Twilio, a Messagebird, a Sendbird. These type of companies are fantastic. They are optimized for bulk message sending for transactional proxied messaging. Great for like a contact center use case, great for like a marketing newsletter or password reset. We do something different where we connect directly into that data store to drive the experiences. And we, we think that one aligns a little bit better with the user privacy needs, but two, functionally it gives you a better product. It allows you to drive better, higher engagement, better deliverability, better click-through rates on anything you're doing by meaningful amounts, like 30% plus. And then uh, on the other side, you get access to data that there's no way, literally no, no other way of getting. And you get it all with one integration. I don't know, in, internally, the, like wrapping up that uh, monologue, we're seeing this sort of like trend going from, I think people were calling them digital natives at first. Over the next five years, I see it as like almost coding native. People are getting more and more used to understanding like the functional shape of software tools. But in the day, it's in service of doing the one thing that we as humans do special, which is interact with each other, communicate with each other, right? We've seen over and over again that it's technologies like the printing press, radio, telephony, the internet itself, uh, things that enable collaboration and communication that drive so much social change. Like at the end of the day, like I can't do anything by myself. I don't think many people can. You have to talk to someone else. You have to work someone else to get things done. The more people you talk to, the more people are on the same story, the same message, right? We, we go to the moon, we win wars, we like change the fabric of society and have revolutions for the better. And that's done as people work together. I'm just saying the corollary. Uh, what I'm saying is that if that's true, and it is true, then the contents of communication contain everything you need to know to get something done, to understand someone, to get people on board with something and to accomplish something together. And it's a pretty exciting place to be, to be like the 
the ones selling the, the picks and shovels to that gold rush, giving people the tools to like be successful, to like chase after like large incumbent software companies with low cost, to like come up with completely new use cases and put them out into the market. It's a fantastic place to be in the market right now. Changing gears a little bit and talking about also on the business side, how do you see, for example, for SaaS companies, and I understand that it differs from company to company and the way they do business, but there has to be a trend that most of software companies, probably, especially in the domain that you are, meaning that you are selling to developers, what is the new role of sales and what is the new role of marketing? As we move forward, do you see any change? Or from your perspective, we are still, in principle, we are doing the same thing. Really, just the details may change, but you don't see any change. What is your perspective on that? I would say that the biggest, maybe generalized or fundamental shift I've been seeing, and th this started well before Nihilus, right? This is something that's decades long is this movement from like on-prem to cloud and at the same time this movement from hey our docs are hidden to try before you buy here's our docs here's our products i'm for a free thing basically it's like the death of vaporware is what we've seen uh over the past 10 years where i i don't know if you remember like you would easily sign up to buy software and it'd be complete nonsense or never get delivered or whatever else i'm sure it still happens somewhere but it's not nearly as prevalent and the reason is, is like the market has shifted into a place where there's just a straight expectation for any technical product at the very least that you'd be able to demo it, that you'd be able to try it out, that you'd be able to prove that it works. This is where you get product-led growth. This is where you get product-led sales, which is where our go-to-market motion most resembles. You know, it's inbound-driven, it's uh, technical, it's the product uh, demonstrating value. But for us, we still have a sales rep touch every deal uh, above the very smallest package sizes that are just like a hobbyist developer signing up. Any customer of any size has like a human working them through the sales motion, making sure that we've aligned the roadmaps and everything else. But we get the efficiency on distribution by having like the inbound funnel and flow driving a lot of our content. So I guess like the shift on sales in my mind is around how do you much more crisply align to product market fit, maybe at the end of the day, but uh, the value that your product drives your customer. It's this whole idea of, what's the phrase? Selling isn't helping. Helping is selling. This idea that you can't just uh, go there and like, be like, this is how amazing my company is. You can't be like the world's best person and expect that be enough. You see it in hiring cycles. Uh, sales reps, execs, like everyone is asking more and more about like, what's it do? Does it do it well? Part of it is tied to their you know, reputations, they don't want to sell a shitty product and then they uh, burn a long-term relationship with somebody. Part of it is they want to make their number, but it's like a, a realization of the importance of like actually having a product that matches its market. And a realization that like the more you drive a customer value, the better the relationship will be. And if you align the go-to-market motion with the product, with the customer in need, it's easier to sell. It's easier to get the job done. It's easier to have a successful relationship with that customer. At the same time, I think what that means for marketing is a bit more complicated and nuanced, as it always is when it comes to, to all things marketing. But there is a strong, strong need right now to understand your ICP, to understand your buyer as much as possible. And the interplay between the buyer itself, like for us, for example, developers are end users. 
developers very rarely are, are buyers. Maybe it's some of the smaller companies, maybe it's some of the places where it's like the CTO is still in the code base. It'll be the developers that are putting things down. But certainly for any of our enterprise customers, there's a procurement team, a legal team, a, a product team before any of those teams that get involved to vet out the use cases, the build, the ideas, the ROI that the business is going to see from that product integration. And on the marketing end, that becomes a challenge for a couple of reasons. One, in the new world of privacy, I think all the old playbooks are breaking. The old like CPC type digital acquisition playbooks that people really ran just on rinse and repeat for the past call it five to 10 years are kind of breaking down. I think the analogy there is like, uh, do you remember Casper Mattresses, the mattress company? Do you remember how they uh, first got distribution? No. Podcasts. It was like podcast ads. It was like the YouTube video sponsorships. It was like also a lot of uh, paid digital. Those core economics have changed. You can't create a Casper mattress today using the exact same motions because the economics are different. Ad platforms are different. Those channels are saturated in a way that bumps the prices up, that makes it a lot harder to get your message out. So on the marketing side, you've got to adjust somehow. And I don't have, I don't have the uh, crystal ball on what the, what the best way there is, but you've got to be much more clever in how you apply your spend versus your growth goals. We have seen a number of cases that even outside software world that they are getting more educational on their sales and marketing approach. And let me ask you this question this way, that for example, let's say you are not, and it's not happening in real world, but let's assume you are not under pressure to deliver quarterly results. That's not a problem at all, right? So we are thinking very, very long-term and you have resources to think that way. And then from that aspect, if you were in that position, would you have just purely 100% solely would go with just educating and that would automatically would drive your customers, your leads, your kind of revenue? Because if you could just focus on education and you were not worried about end of the quarter and you could see that that may take a little bit longer than a quarter, but at the end, that's going to bring you a bigger result. Would you have done that? Or is still from your perspective, that's not enough, just focusing on education. And I will give you an example. Tesla has been very successful from the get-go to have really, rather than just you know opening shops to sell cars like everybody, every other car maker, they said, no, we are just going to open these shops. And if you go there and say, I want to buy a car, you still need to use your mobile phone to buy a car, but we are here to educate you. And that was more education. There have been some other cases that we have seen that they are focusing on education purely as a mean to really sell. How would you see that might be the future? And if, again, the company can afford to think and act long-term and quarterly is not a problem, would that happen? I feel like, no, it's not enough on its own. But I completely agree that that's, that's a trend. So in any, call it sales conversation you're having, whether you're selling Tesla, selling software, whether you as a founder are raising funds from VCs, the goal is only one thing. You want to instill trust and confidence in yourself. Trust and confidence. It comes down to, does someone trust you? Do they believe what you're saying? And so I see like this education piece, which it, it's huge. It's huge. 
completely agree with your observation. That's the, the general trend. But that's in service of instilling trust and confidence in your core product and your go-to-market motion and like what you're selling in the value that you're going to provide through the transaction. So like it's not enough to just like, uh, educate about EVs, right? You also have to build a Tesla. And from a certain perspective, you could say that like enterprise or infrastructure software sales are very simple, like uh, very straightforward. You really, uh, maybe not easy, but simple. You have to do three things. You have to, one, solve a existing pain point. Two, you have to um, add future optionality through whatever your solution is. You have to give the enterprise future functionality or optionality rather for their roadmap. Can't just be a point solution for that issue today. And three, you have to educate that enterprise about what's going to happen in the future. What's shifting? How can they improve their own thinking? How can you make the champion that's buying your thing look like an absolute hero? And like, I was going to say Cassandra, but that's actually a bad example of someone who can tell the future. That's someone nobody listens to. Uh, how do you make them into like a, maybe a Nostradamus is a better example within their company that helps like educate them, help their career and help the company come to better decisions. So that's what drives that trust and confidence piece. And like the reason that people are going more and more towards education is people have built up an immune reaction, like similar to this channel saturation on CPC or paid demand gen or whatever. People have been saturated on like really salesy motion. And so people currently are responding to, well, here's the value of the product. Here's how we see the space. Here's like thought leadership here because it feels lower pressure, high signal and more useful. It feels like you're learning something. You're not wasting time. And that if you agree with what you're learning, amazing. Like the category has been created. Like you are now out there as a market leader. People see you as a trusted resource when you get it right. But fundamentally, I don't see that as anything different from changing the subject line on an email uh, that you use for cold outreach after you find that one that was great in the past is no longer working. It's just a different way to drive towards the end goal of building trust and confidence with your end buyer as you convince them to exchange goods and services for their hard-earned cash. Okay. So from your perspective, even if you have the same technology, you have the same product, but you go to your sales and marketing and say, starting January 1st, I would like for you to only educate the market and educate our prospects and whoever comes to us. And if it's you know just the market is marketing, if it's prospect, meaning somebody come to us because we generated some leads, that's sales. But you guys just educate them. And then you let them, after education, come and say, I wanted to now buy it. But you don't ask them to buy. You don't ask them, what is the deadline? Are you going to move forward by the end of the quarter? And all of those things that we do at sales to qualify to do everything. But you guys just go there and educate them. You think that will not compete with the sales that we have. So you still need that kind of sales traditional style to really drive sales and education can be a help, but not a replacement, even in the future. That's my position. Yeah. And I think you can break it down into different distribution models. Maybe you can look at it from an ASB standpoint. So if your distribution model is like PLG, PLS, where we are, what you're fundamentally saying is you want a bunch of inbound conversations to efficiently convert. So that's where you see motions and plays, like maybe they're tools that are in the, you know, call it 20 to $200 a month type range where you have folks coming in and it's more efficient to do a webinar. You know, it's, it, it's not worth individual one-off conversations to happen between the rep, but you're still educating because it's telling people, hey, I'm not chasing after you. I don't think that's worth it. You'll come to me if you're ready. I'm so confident and you can trust me because of the nature of the content. 
deal company when you're ready. I'm the best solution out there. Versus like an enterprise motion where you have to do the same. You 100% have to do that education piece to get the trust and confidence. But at the same time, if you have two companies that are the same, one's just doing education and the other is doing education and building relationships and driving towards like a agreed business value and mapping out the org structure and figuring out like the timelines to close and like setting up all the legal terms and procurement teams, one will close business faster and outcompete the other. Makes sense. And then let's say, for example, on a different front, one thing that you mentioned brings me to the point that also it depends, as you said, the product and the platform versus, for example, in your case, also in my case, in Curve case, we are platform providers. So we are really providing a platform. We could just provide a component or something much smaller. So in that case, it would have been totally different business because they could come in and just look at that component. It's a much easier, faster, higher velocity, probably more transactional kind of deals. And it could totally change then the way you distribute the software versus when you have a platform, then in that case, then it's the whole platform. It's totally different value, probably it's different way. So maybe that's also the other factor that probably most formula on the sales and marketing part really at the root depends on are you really selling a platform or you're trying to sell a smaller piece. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Honestly, for us, as like a similar platform, we're very horizontal. And you can sort of think of us as we sell Lego blocks. We sell Lego blocks for a bunch of things. Really, really powerful, interesting, useful Lego blocks. But at the end of the day, it's up to our customers to put them together. You know, they come to us and say like, hey, like I want to build the Eiffel Tower. And uh, we say, cool. I mean, we don't have that in our instructions, but here's the instructions for the Arc de Triomphe. And if you kind of like put a triangle on top and rotate it, like that's basically the Eiffel Tower. Is, is sort of what our sales motion is at the end of the day. It's like giving them the instruction set on how they use those level blocks to accomplish their goal. The challenge for us, and maybe, maybe y'all are similar, is there's a trade-off between TAM and distribution velocity when it comes to platform versus uh, core solution. So if you have like a core tight solution for one specific use case, and you get that use case perfectly right, you can go from like zero to 20 million in a year as a startup. And it's rare, but it happens. You see companies do it. Uh, it's because they completely nail the product market fit, the use case, the messaging, the, uh, the team, like everything, the stars align and they're able to just crank. It's like a bite-sized snackable use case. Platforms don't have that. And platforms instead have much bigger TAM and applicability, but it becomes a, a more nuanced conversation because suddenly you have to do education. You have to do maybe a human-led motion, thought leadership in general in the market as to, okay, but why is your specific problem solved by this general platform? And that becomes like a, a optimization problem when you're growing your business. As you go and you know, look at next year, two, three years out, how do you think about investments in this or that vertical? How do you think about in uh, building out a sales team for enterprise here? How do you think about like the enablement for the general market there? How do you think about not only talking to the users that know they need you now, but educating the folks that like, don't yet understand that they're going to need you next year. It becomes more complicated. But on the other end, the trade-off that you gain is way more TAM as a platform. If you are a platform for all WebRTC or video calls, that you get to be Zoom and it doesn't matter what uh, industry you're in. Uh, you're, you're nihilist uh, and it doesn't matter what industry you're in if you want to schedule something. 
everyone has to deal with linear time. Everyone has to figure out how to orchestrate people through time to get things done and they use software to get things done. So your software has to do that. It becomes very snackable. Stripe, another great example. Uh, the API layer, the API economy lends itself super well to platform plays because every company needs to take payments. Cool. And also, is it uh, fair to say the platform takes longer to build? So you have to spend more money, more time to really build the platform, but it can scale better versus maybe a, a smaller piece that you could build faster and go to market faster. But then you had to think about another component, another component. Somehow you have to augmented to make your market and your revenue grow and scale and scale. So that may be another kind of another way. Yeah, uh, the, the solution-based or like um, single-use case products, so much faster for going to market. That's the distribution piece, the distribution velocity I was talking about. Platforms longer, but bigger TAM. It, it is slower to build. The, uh, I'd also make the argument they're stickier. At that end app level, if there's a tightly constrained use case and it's a valuable space, you're going to get more competition. And if it's a tightly constrained use case, it's an easier problem to solve. Like Zoom is a good example. Like what fundamentally, and I'm a big fan of Zoom, I'm not knocking them. What's different about Zoom and Skype? What's different about Zoom and Google Meet? How defensible is that space? 20 years from now, are people still going to be on Zoom or will it be some other web conferencing tool? And 20 years from now, how different will that web conferencing tool really be? Or will it be roughly the same? Like, there's no uh, restaurant that can be the only restaurant you go to. Like, you can't have like, the French laundry in every seat in the world, and neither can you always eat a McDonald's. It's unhealthy. But you can open up a lot of McDonald's really fast. Okay, good example, definitely. Let me ask you also if you could introduce a book that you liked it, if you could tell us, share with us some books or a book that, or maybe a podcast, maybe a blog post, something that you personally thought that, hey, this is really something was impactful and I enjoyed reading it. And it was really something that it had a positive impact on what I do. I appreciate if you could also share that with us and with audience. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one book that I found super useful pretty recently when it comes to like international business is, uh, what is it? Let me pull up the title. When Cultures Collide, Leading Across Cultures by Richard Lewis. So um, what I find most useful about this one is that you can use it as like a reference guide. So they go country by country, laying out not quite a formulaic way, but here are like the values and communication styles that tend to happen in a business culture in these countries. Here's what the like values tend to be. Here's what people tend to get insulted by. Here's what they tend to respond well to. I find it just as a, as a guide, very, very useful. Whether or not you take the advice, it's always nice to at least have a sketch of what the potential outlines for an interaction might be. Very interesting. Great. Thank you very much. It was really nice having you on this show and having the conversation. Definitely we'll be in touch and hope to see you again in the future. Absolutely, Armin. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening.
This episode is brought to you by Curvey, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.